Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. We hear a lot in the news these days about gun violence, typically in the wake of mass shooting events. These incidents feel like they're happening everywhere, but the reality is that the likelihood of your exposure to gun violence actually depends a lot in the neighborhood you live in. That's because gun violence doesn't take place evenly across cities, but tends to concentrate in just a few areas. And not surprisingly, neighborhoods with high rates of gun violence also tend to be dealing with high rates of poverty and limited opportunity. This week, we're going to take a look at gun violence in Chicago, where the disparities are especially extreme. According to an analysis in The Trace, people living in the Chicago neighborhoods Burnside and Fuller Park were nine times more likely to be shot in 2016 than people living in the city's safest neighborhoods. Nine times more likely. So what is it like to live in a place where gun violence is a part of daily life, knowing that there's a high likelihood that you or a loved one could get shot? What are the lasting impacts of growing up in a place in which exposure to violence is almost universal? And where do we even begin to address this challenge? Here's Carlyle Pittman and Trayvon Bosley, both activists from Chicago, to provide a little additional perspective. We have so many young people that normalize that trauma that they hear gunshots and just keep walking like it's normal. We have young people walking around, literally undiagnosed PTSD victims walking around on our streets and not having the proper services, not having the proper things in there to deal with that and to let them know that this isn't life, this is not normal. I lost my brother uh, a few years ago, well, 10 years ago. And I've also lost a countless amount of family members and friends to gun violence as well. And just speaking on growing up as a young black teen in Chicago, we are surrounded by not only just gun violence, but police brutality as well. Most of us aren't thinking of our life on a long-term scale Most of us are either thinking day-to-day, hour-to-hour, for some even minute-to-minute. To get a better understanding of what's happening in these communities, I spoke to Urban Institute senior researcher and criminal justice expert Jocelyn Fontaine. Jocelyn's work focuses on strategies that can help stem the tide of violence and trauma in some of the country's most stressed-out neighborhoods. So I've long been interested in neighborhoods and what makes neighborhoods safe or not safe. So I consider myself a researcher who has a place-based perspective and have been interested, curious about uh, neighborhoods that are experiencing concentrated disadvantage and why those are the neighborhoods that we see such high rates of crime and disorder. Jocelyn's work has brought her to the parts of Chicago that are bearing the brunt of the city's violent crime. I've been there, I don't know, like five times this year. So I feel very connected to the city. I've worked in several communities in Chicago. So Garfield Park, Inglewood, Austin, Auburn Gresham, North Lawndale. The communities that Jocelyn studies have some characteristics in common. Unfortunately, they are racially homogenous. So those are all overwhelmingly majority Black neighborhoods. So there are pockets of Latinos and are extremely disadvantaged. So There's a lot of resilience there, but there is a lot of uh, hopelessness and a lot of crime, a lot of disorder. Those are places in Chicago that have had persistently high rates of crime and violence over the years. And though the crime spikes in Chicago, as well as sort of like the lulls are notable, these are places uh, where 
those sorts of trends are most pronounced because they're the places that going back years have, you know, persistently had high rates of crime, criminal activity, gang activity, high rates of poverty, that sort of thing. Jocelyn's trying to get at the trends that are driving violent crime in Chicago at the neighborhood level and in the city as a whole and why violence can spike or flare up at certain times. It's a very large city. Um, geographically, it's quite spread out. The south side of the city where crime happens and in, in certain pockets is very far from the kind of the hub, the economic hub of the city, the downtown Chicago loop. And so some of the neighborhoods that I've mentioned consistently have had problems with crime. And the spike, you know, some research that's been done by my colleague, Andy Papacristos, and others that do um, work on gangs, gang violence, gang networks, usually the spikes are attributable to the small network of individuals who are responsible for a disproportionate amount of crime. In a recent project, Jocelyn and team did something a little bit different to try and deepen our understanding of gun violence. They went directly to the young people in Chicago who were most likely to have guns and talked to them about when and why they carry. We sought out to interview young adults who are most at risk, so most likely to carry or most likely to know people who carry. And through that work, we found that of the 345 individuals that we spoke to, a little more than half of them were, were men, and this is ages 18 to 26. A third of the entire sample said that they had ever carried in their lifetime, and half of the young men that we spoke to had ever carried a gun. So Jocelyn found that there are a lot of people who are carrying, the majority of young men she talked to, in fact, but they're not carrying all the time. And when they are, it's often for a reason, because they think it's safer to have a gun. But we find that they're carrying infrequently. So few of them say that they always have it on them, that they're always carrying. There are specific places that they carry, and it's the places where they feel they need it for self-protection because of these bad relationships with the police and the high levels of crime that exist in these neighborhoods. Individuals feel like it's, 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 it's on them to protect themselves and to protect their family members. Jocelyn looked into why the people they talked to said they feel safer when they're carrying guns. And it turns out that violence and victimization is really common in their neighborhoods. Almost everyone had a friend or loved one who had been subjected to violence in the past year. The level of victimization, recent victimization. So this was a question, not have you ever experienced personal victimization? And victimization included a lot of different things like being shot, stabbed, but also robbed, assaulted, been in a fight, that sort of thing. So the number of individuals who had recent exposure to that is quite high, about a third of the sample. And then among how many of them know someone, you know, a friend or a family member that's been victimized is nearly all of them. So the level of exposure to to victimization is quite high. And we found that it's even higher among individuals who said that they have ever carried a gun. Men in particular who had been shot or shot at um, were 300% more likely to have ever carried a gun. So if it isn't you personally experiencing that, you know, you at least know someone in your family network or your friend network or in the neighborhood that's had uh, this level of exposure. And, uh, you know, knowing that, you know, these adverse you know, incidents are cumulative over time, what that does to you emotionally, physically, uh, your outlook on life, all of those things, you know, is, is deeply, deeply problematic and, and troubling. In Chicago, the rate for solving homicides is low, like really low. 
only 17%. And that means that there's a high rate of unsolved murders, of violence taking place, but never seeing the consequences that you'd expect. And that can change the behavior of young adults in these dangerous neighborhoods. In a lot of ways, it's not irrational that they would be carrying a gun, right? Uh, that's the an unfortunate reality for a lot of them that, again, because they've had victimization experiences themselves and, you know, coupled with the lack of trust in police, right, that you personally don't trust the police, but also what you see around you is that these places are violent. It is rational to feel like, okay, it's all on me. I need to carry a gun in the event that, you know, someone comes at me. And these young people in these neighborhoods, I mean, we talk about the 17% clearance rate, but they they know what that is. They, you know, they feel that too, right? Um, they understand, okay, my friend, my family member, or this guy or gal, you know, two blocks over got shot. And yet, where's the justice there? As a researcher, it has to be really hard to have these conversations with young people and have this stark representation of what the reality is. It's humbling and then it's also depressing and sad that there's people that are suffering in their daily lives. And I certainly don't want to give the impression that there isn't joy and love and hope in these individuals' lives or in their communities, but there is quite a bit that is awful, that is really sad, and the divide between those individuals, those families, those communities, and the mainstream, certainly those of us in D.C. that are doing this work, is so vast that I'm always a bit unmoored, unsettled by that, and thinking that through even further, that policies and practices are are designed, are sort of implemented by us here in D.C. or, you know, kind of the mainstream or, you know, public administrators broadly that aren't that reflective of individuals in these communities that have these lived experiences is also becomes upsetting to me as well. So there's no easy answers here. These communities have long faced huge systematic challenges, and there's not a single solution that will fix everything. So the question is, how can policymakers and researchers and community members best address these challenges? Jocelyn's research suggests that at least a starting point can be policies informed by the communities experiencing everyday violence. What this work suggests is that we need trauma-informed approaches. And I do mean that broadly. Um, System actors, which include police, but uh, social service providers, all of that, those people, those institutions should recognize that individuals that are living in these neighborhoods, and particularly the, the young people that we talk to, 18 to 26, have a lot of trauma in their lives. They've experienced a ton of it, both personally and within their networks. And so services, systems, supports, all of that needs to be infused with a, with, with a, a, you know, a trauma-informed kind of perspective and approach that they are victims. To dig a little deeper into this idea of trauma-informed perspectives and how policymakers and communities can think about this approach, I talked to another Urban Institute researcher, Elsa Falkenberger. Elsa's work also focuses on neighborhoods dealing with violent crime and other stressors, and she thinks a lot about what trauma-informed work looks like. Part of, you know, we can use the word trauma and it's kind of a buzzword right now, but I think it really just means understanding the history, the context, the culture of a community. And so I think that using the word trauma 
while it's definitely not a strength-based word, it allows people to recognize that they've been through something, that you're acknowledging that there's a history there, and that it's not their entire responsibility to fix everything in their community, or that everything that has happened to them is not necessarily their own wrongdoing. And so I think the entire framework of trauma-informed lens to community work or to medical services or whatever it is, is really important because it removes that blame. And this is especially important when working with young people who are dealing with high levels of violence, poverty, and other stressors in their communities. Elsa says the very experience of living in a neighborhood that feels cast aside can be a form of trauma. So if you have generations of communities that have been disinvested in, where there are no grocery stores, where people, you know, that there's a lot of stigma to living there, you might not even want to write your address down. Um, There's uh, poor public safety. There's oftentimes more environmental hazards, sometimes that are often not known. And so just the effect of living in a community that has been cast aside that way has an impact on, it is a form of trauma that's experienced by the community and also that's internalized, particularly by young people who live there who feel that it's directly related to their self-worth. In fact, research shows that for kids or young adults who regularly experience traumatic events, the stress can have a dramatic impact on the brain and their health. Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris, a pediatrician and leader in the field of treatment of toxic stress, puts it well. We now understand better than we ever have before how exposure to early adversity affects the developing brains and bodies of children. I am talking about threats that are so severe or pervasive that they literally get under our skin and change our physiology. Now, the exposure I'm talking about is not a pesticide or a packaging chemical. It's childhood trauma. Elsa has a similar perspective. You know, when you look at what happens to somebody's brain when they experience a trauma and what happens to somebody's brain when they experience various traumas and don't have certain supportive buffers in their, you know, in their environment, it has lasting impacts on their brain and it has lasting impacts on how you make decisions and whether you're making long-term decisions or short-term decisions and how you respond to stress. And these lasting effects are real. Research has found that people who are exposed to a high number of adverse childhood experiences are more likely to have physical health issues in the future, like autoimmune diseases and mental health issues like depression. So a trauma-informed perspective recognizes that traumas can have a widespread and lasting impact on people and communities. But what does this mean in practical terms? I asked Elsa how city leaders might best engage the residents of a neighborhood where violent crime is rampant and opportunity is scarce. I would say show up on their territory, let them pick the location and the time, you bring food, you are there to listen. I think it's that simple. I think that people are in such a hurry to get to the, what's the answer? What's the solution? What are we doing? That they forget that really, really critical first step, which is just to open your ears and have a conversation and form relationships. And once people get to that point, they're going to trust you more. They're going to see that you're there for the longer term. You're not just trying to rush your solutions. And then they're going to engage with you and give you some really good substance that's going to make it possible for you to design something that's more effective. So the first step is simple. Show up, listen, and be patient. And know that real solutions take time. The second step would really be, along with that first step, is to acknowledging the existing relationship that the different partners and um, individuals in the room might might have, acknowledging a history or acknowledging any mistrust that's in the room, any elephants in the room. I think that showing from the beginning that there's real transparency. And I think, again, very 
closely aligned to number two would be a third one, which is putting your money where your mouth is. And so immediately showing whether it's quote unquote, low hanging fruit or something that you can fund or something that you can make happen quickly. Uh, Community members are used to being used and left out to dry and they're used to things not coming, you know, panning out. And so I think that to really show that you mean it is to invest immediately in their community and something that they value, that they've stated as their priority and showing that you can really make something happen and that you're willing to use your time, your resources, your platform in order to benefit them and to get what they want done is really important. And then you can move on from there. Ongoing neighborhood gun violence can seem like an insurmountable challenge. One way for researchers and policymakers to work with communities experience this type of violence is to acknowledge that they've been through trauma and then to make serious investments of time and resources over the long term. Invite the community in and try and cast a wide net and talk to them and say, what do you need? What would you like to see from us? How can we be better? Listen and change. As usual, we'll close with some key takeaways. Here's three things you need to know. One, how likely you are to be exposed to gun violence depends a lot on where you live. In Chicago and other big U.S. cities, violence tends to be concentrated in a few neighborhoods, which are also struggling with high rates of poverty, disinvestment, and limited opportunities to move ahead. Two, young people from high-crime areas in Chicago who carry guns often say they do it for protection. Nearly all of them had been victims of crime or had friends or family members who were victimized in some form. And these experiences with violence and trauma can have lasting impacts on a person's health and well-being. And three, efforts to address violence in these communities should be trauma-informed, meaning they take into account the systematic and widespread impacts of trauma that people and communities have experienced. Trauma-informed approaches place the community at the center, value openness and transparency, and are responsive to community members' history and needs. So that's our show. Thanks to Jocelyn Fontaine and Elsa Falkenberger. You can find more about their work in the show notes on our webpage, www.urban.org slash critical value. If you like the show, please tell your friends. We love getting connected to other smart, policy-minded folks out there. And one small request from us. Please take a few seconds to rate the podcast on iTunes. Like, go ahead, pause the show right now and hit the stars button on your podcast app. No worries, we can wait. See how easy that was? Thanks so much for the support. And thanks to our producer, Kate Villarreal, Katie Smith for being an overall rock star, and our sound editor, Riley Byrne from Podigy.co. That's P-O-D-I-G-Y dot C-O. Our theme music is by Moby. For everyone on the Critical Value team, this is Justin Milner signing off.